The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Good morning. Uh, The title of the sermon this morning is God Bless the Broken Road. Uh, Subtitle would be Jacob's Sojourn through Genesis 28 through 31. We've been whittling away uh, at those chapters. Today I get to close his journey with chapter 31. Uh, But before I do, let me give us some uh, context and some direction. Uh, My daughter Kayla and I love the band Rascal Flats. Uh, One of their biggest hits, although about male and female romance, contains a very profound understanding of God's active, good, and sovereign working in the affairs of men. It's interesting that a secular country band would capture accurate doctrine uh, while much of today's church completely misses it. As I read through these lyrics, look past the earthly context of romance and observe the greater, more profound idea of the song. I set out on a narrow way many years ago, hoping I would find true love along the broken road. But I got lost a time or two, wiped my brow, and kept pushing through. I couldn't see how every sign pointed straight to you, that every long-lost dream led me to where you are, Others who broke my heart, they were like northern stars, pointing me on my way into your loving arms. This much I know is true, that God blessed the broken road that led me straight to you. It is unfortunate that we are living out a chapter in the church's age in which sloppy doctrine, sensate experience, and heretical teaching abounds in our nation's congregations thus resulting in an inability to see God's hand in uncomfortable and difficult circumstances, and even worse, an attribution to the evil one for anything that may cause us inconvenience or discomfort. As we examine the final part of what Jacob Heiford a couple weeks ago identified as a biblical Jacob's chiastic passage, which describes his travels from Canaan to Padan Aram and then back again, I will be using this passage to highlight that the broken road we all must travel, that every turn, every crack, every pothole, and every bump is not just used by, but is entirely designed and controlled by a good and sovereign covenant-keeping God. Let's pray before any one of us goes a step further. Father, we thank you for everything that you do. Lord, we thank you for the things that cause us pleasure. We thank you for the things that cause us pain. We know because you are always good. We know because you are completely sovereign 
And we know because you have promised us these things in your word that all things are under that goodness and under that sovereignty and they are there for your good pleasure, for your glory, and they all benefit your people. Lord, now as we close out Jacob's journey, I pray that you would guide us accurately through your word, that we would be responsible uh, and properly handle it, that we would divide it accurately, and Lord, that we would leave here this morning a changed people, people who are better equipped to bring you even further glory. Lord, use this time now to mold us, to refine us, to make us wiser, to make us humbler, to make us better followers of Jesus Christ, to make us better lovers of the people around us, that we may act on the urgency that we must uh, to bring them in a right relationship with you. We hand us over to you, we hand our time over to you, and our examination of your word over to you, and ask you to be the great orchestrator of it all. And we thank you for this privilege and this opportunity in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Let's begin by reviewing what a chiastic structure is. Its name comes from the Greek letter that visually illustrates it best. That is the Greek letter chi. It looks like our X. It is a literary tactic often used to describe a central event that has a series of lesser events that lead up to it and another series of lesser events that back away from it that are either synonymous or antithetical to the first set. While there are some variations to the chiastic structure, the ones we will be most concerned with this morning resemble the left half of the chi, in which A happens, B happens, and then central C event happens, followed by those in reverse. We back out with B again, and we back out and end with A. Now... To give you a quick illustration, uh, let me use this. Uh, Let's call event A, I get out of bed this morning. Event B is I drive from New Hyde Park to Massapequa. Event C is I hear from God's word. Event B prime, which is now matching the first B, is I now drive from... Massapequa back to New Hyde Park and in keeping true with this what do I do when I get to A prime go back to bed right okay the book of Genesis is a series of back-to-back chiastic structures from beginning to end chapter 31 uh, that we'll be looking at this morning is no different now this is important there's a purpose for this why do you think that God would have Genesis written in this literary form Think about that. Why would God do that? He doesn't do that with every writing, but he clearly does that with Genesis. Well, chiastic form serves at least three essential functions. Uh, One of the main ones we're going to look at this morning, and it's going to help us actually understand this, this chapter. One is that it simply provides structure to the narrative. Another is that it draws the reader's attention to the central and most crucial point of the narrative. In the brief example that I gave you, what is the central most important point? That I came here and listened to the word. Okay? I went through a process to get here. I went through a process to reverse it. But what was in the middle is me hearing or participating in the most important element. 
That is hearing God's word. Finally, and maybe most importantly, it facilitates the memorization of God's word. I gave you a brief illustration that most of you will not forget now, as stupid as it is, okay? God encouraged memorization when he said in Deuteronomy 6, to teach them diligently to your sons, and and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. All this so that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. This is why God gives us mnemonic devices. This is why God encourages us and facilitates our memorization and our understanding of his word. Now, rather than read back through what Mike read, uh, because this is a long chapter, uh, what we will be doing is reading through it selectively as its ideas are laid out chiastically. In chapter 28, and let's get some background first, catch everybody up to speed here. In chapter 28, verse 2, Isaac commands Jacob to go to Padanaram to find a wife from his family's household rather than from among the local Canaanite women. In other words, Isaac is telling Jacob, leave, go over there. In 28.16, we see what is arguably Jacob's moment of true conversion and salvation, followed by his vow that if God be with me, if he keeps me, If he keeps me fed, if he keeps me clothed, and if I return to my father's house safely, the Lord will be my God. In chapter 29, Jacob finds his cousins who he assists in watering flocks from a well, gets knocked head over heels by Rachel, is warmly greeted and embraced by Uncle Laban, who eventually relentlessly and repeatedly abuses him, and then begins to grow his family through four different women. Chapter 30, Jacob's wives begin the baby wars and increase his family's population through having babies. Jacob requests Laban's release of him and his family. Laban refuses because occultic divination, according to him, has supposedly revealed to him that God has used Jacob to prosper him. I think common sense would have revealed that. And Jacob grows his wealth through expanding his flocks. Please note something very interesting before we get into our study of chapter 31, though. Who's writing this narrative? That's not rhetorical. Somebody tell me. Who's writing this narrative? Moses is writing this, okay? Do you see anything in this narrative that may have personal value to Moses? Okay, and if you don't yet, you're going to. Remember that just like Laban warmly greeted Jacob... Joseph's people were warmly and generously embraced by Egypt's pharaoh. Remember a few years later, uh, we're going to see Joseph go into Egypt, and he's going to save Egypt. This pagan leader and his people acknowledged that it was Joseph's God who saved them and caused them to prosper, and they were grateful. It was that same position of authority, though, that 400 years later would begin to relentlessly and repeatedly abuse God's covenant people. Didn't we just see that? But God blessed and prospered his covenant people despite their abuse 
through number one, the Hebrew women continuing to produce children, and number two, through leaving Egypt with abundance in wealth. When your kids make it to college, be aware that unless it is a biblically sound college, they will be taught that all the Bible is is a compilation of poetic fictional stories that were never intended to be taken literally. These professors will support their arguments by pointing to the fact that the same motifs keep happening over and over again. What they will never acknowledge, though, is that the reason we see the same motifs appear over and over again is because these moments in history were orchestrated by a common designer. This common designer also has an end game to which all historical events are designed to point, and that he wishes to constantly keep his covenant people's eyes on the prize. That is the cross in Jesus Christ. So what we're going to see with Joseph, what we're going to see with Jacob, what we're going to see with a whole slew of the patriarchs throughout the Old Testament, it's all going to illustrate and and come into fruition a final event that centers around the cross. There's going to be a long list of parallels that we see in Jacob's Exodus in Genesis 31 that we also will see in Moses' Exodus. By the way, we will also ultimately see, like I said, in Jesus' exodus, as he takes our citizenship out of the world and into the land of our Father, the spiritual promised land. As we took, or I'm sorry, as we look into Genesis 31 now, keep our parallel to the great exodus in mind and use the chiastic structures to identify the key points of this passage, all the while keeping in mind that what we have been seeing all along and this, this is not going to be new. And this is what kind of made things difficult for me this morning is because chapter 31 is in essence saying the same thing that we've been saying all along, Sunday after Sunday. God is good and completely sovereign at all times. Man is sinful and sovereign over absolutely nothing. And that God does what he does, not in response to man's goodness, but in keeping with his promises and objectives. Keep those three items in mind, and we'll get a lot out of this chapter. Genesis 30 ends with the statement, So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. That's not just a nice thing. That's very central to this story. Genesis 31 then divides into three uh, plural for chiasmus, or chiasmus is chiasmai. The first one being found in verse 1 through 21. So you can turn there. It's okay if you cheat. Uh, look at verse 1, compare it to verse 21. Because where we start is where we will end up. Verse 1 and 2 state, Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what belonged to our father, he has made all this wealth. And Jacob saw the attitude of Laban, and behold, it was not friendly towards him as formerly. Here we see Jacob, who was initially brought in with welcoming arms, now being disdained, but still prospering mightily with what he legitimately accumulated during his years in service to Laban. In verse 3, God tells Jacob, go. Remember back in 28, dad said, go, get out of here, go away, find a wife. Now God's saying, go, get out of here, you've got your wife, go back home. 
Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. This has got to be wonderful news for Jacob. His time with Laban has been one of being taken advantage of, of being made a fool, of being conned, of suffering under circumstances that he never saw coming back when his father Isaac commanded him to go to Laban to begin with. This isn't just a chance to get out, though. As Jacob prepares to return home, what is he departing with? He has two wives. He has two maidservants that have given him or will give him 13 children, 12 of whom will become great nations. He has healthy and numerous flocks of goats and sheep. Remember, he left the sickly ones back with Laban. He has camels, donkeys, servants, and other types of unspecified wealth. Most importantly, he has the presence, protection, and provision of God, the God of his fathers that he met personally along the way. All these things he accumulated because of this journey. In verse 4 through 7, Jacob calls his wives in for a huddle, reiterates all that he has done for Laban, and points out Laban's mistreatment of him. During the summary, though, he twice states something quite spiritually insightful. In verse 5, he acknowledges that the God of my father has been with me. And in verse 7, he states that God did not allow Laban to hurt him. Both statements were made in response to the abuse he had been taking from Laban. Notice he didn't curse it. He didn't regret it. He didn't doubt it. He acknowledged God's sovereignty throughout it all. In verse 8, Jacob reiterates the speckled and striped goat deal that God blessed and caused the work in his favor. Then in verse 9, we hear Jacob declare God's justice when he says that God has taken away your father's livestock and given it to me. Justice. Remember verse 8 and its mention of the speckled and striped goats. In verse 10, we are going to see them mentioned again as Jacob recalls seeing what happened in a dream. Remember verses 4 through 7 where Jacob acknowledges God's presence throughout his years of service and abuse. In verses 11 through 12, the angel of the Lord speaks to Jacob in a dream, pointing out that all the livestock reproduction that had been taking place was because God has seen all that Laban has been doing to you. Just like in verse 3, we then see God once again in verse 13 command Jacob to rise and leave this land and return to the land of your birth. This chiasmus then comes to a close in verses 14 through 21. And Dan, if we could put that slide up. Comes to a close as we see Jacob loot the place and take off with Rachel and Leah, happily abandoning their father, who depleted their inheritance and treated them as foreigners. They are happy to go. In examining this narrative, we see the chiasmus, the pattern. Notice A and the last A. I'll call that, I'll use some mathematical terminology, we'll call that A prime. A and A prime. Jacob is accused of taking Laban's stuff, and it ends with Jacob takes off with all of Laban's stuff. Let's narrow. Let's move towards the central event. Jacob is commanded to go home, and Jacob is commanded to go home. C and C prime. Jacob acknowledges God's sovereign presence. God reminds Jacob that he has been present all along. D and D prime. Again, they're mentioning the uh, genetic engineering there that God did. Standing by itself in the middle, we see the central 
point. God gave Laban's stuff to Jacob. Do we not see this when Moses and the Israelites take off? According to this chiastic structure, what is the central point? Okay, God turned the tables on Laban, who prospered by stealing from Jacob, and gave all that Laban stole back to Jacob. God took all that Pharaoh unjustly gained from the Israelites and gave it back to them as they left Pharaoh with absolutely nothing. Our second chiasmus is found in verses 22 to 42. Laban finds out that Jacob has fled and decides to pursue him. God speaks to Laban in verse 24 and warns him not to speak good or bad to Jacob when he catches up to him. Laban partially listens to God in that he does have a lot to say to Jacob, most of which is quite delusional and not in tune with reality at all. But he does refrain from harming him because he is afraid of Jacob's God. Now, because this word fear and afraid has been used, let's clarify this. Let's make a side note now and consider the difference between fearing God and being afraid of God. Fearing God involves recognizing that God is sovereign over everything and life will go best when I do what the divine commander-in-chief says. Along with the acknowledgement that I need to play by God's rules lest I face dire consequences is the joy that results from recognizing that the God who has all that power loves me and is for me. Okay? Contrast that to being afraid of God. Being afraid of God is different. It is a form of terror that results from recognizing that I'm not on God's team and he is infinitely more powerful than I am. And as much as I would love to destroy his people and oppose his rule, I fear for my well-being. There is no love in that relationship. Jacob fears God. Laban is afraid of God. Back to Laban. Laban accuses Jacob of carrying his daughters away like captives of the sword. Interesting. That's not the way Rachel and Leah made it sound. He then rebukes Jacob for not giving him the chance to send him off with a big party, nor to kiss his grandkids goodbye. Can we blame Jacob for doubting that this would happen? He ends his diatribe by saying, basically, okay, I get it. You long to go home to be in your father's house. But Jacob, did you have to steal my household idols? Jacob has no idea that Rachel has Laban's idols. We know this because he unwittingly condemns the woman he loves to death if she is found with them when he says in verse 32, the one with whom you find your gods shall not live. Why Rachel took them to begin with leaves us only to speculate, and there are a lot of ideas out there. Not sure what I agree with. But what we do know, though, is that Jacob's God was able to protect and abundantly provide for Jacob while Laban's gods did not have that ability. So Laban searches everything and can't find the gods because Rachel hid them. Verse 36 begins my favorite segment of this chapter. It begins with, then Jacob became angry. How many of you have been waiting for this? <laughs> you know, it's taken us three chapters to get here, but we're finally at this point where the rest of us have been going, Jacob, come on, throw him a right hook, do something. But this has been wrong. Anyway, Jacob continues. 
Now, mind you, he's had enough. He's finally putting his foot down. He's got his war footing on. He says, what is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Though you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? Set it before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn of beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was by day, the heat consumed me, and by the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction in the toil of my hands, so he rendered judgment last night. Bam, drop the mic, it's over. And that ends the second chiasmus. What this must have felt like for Jacob, who used to be a great deceiver, to be able, you know, with, with God's sanctification in his life, to be able to say with integrity and confidence, I have only done right by you. Glory be to God, by the way. We look at our second chiasmus, we see God warns Laban, and at the end Jacob reiterates God's judgment. Laban, just in case you missed it, when God told you directly, I'm telling you now. B and B prime, Jacob refers to the stolen gods. They're mentioned again because Rachel has hidden them. Central point, Laban fails to find his stolen idols. Now, at the climax of this chiasmus, we find Laban losing his idols. Much like God's humiliation of the puny gods of Egypt, Laban's gods are underneath a menstruating and thus unclean woman on an unclean beast, hauled away from the territory and people they were expected to protect. (laughs) How cool is God, man? think he's making a point just like he did when he wiped out systematically every god of the egyptians through the plagues okay egyptians just so you know your frogs your gnats you know hecate all these gods raw they're not going to save you they're no match for yahweh the final chiasmus begins in verse 43, when Laban continues with his delusional perception of things, claiming that the daughters are my daughters and the children are my children and the flocks are my flocks and all that you see is mine. But what can I do? I will make or let's make a covenant that we will keep so that basically, and he doesn't say this, but it's implied, it'll keep you from wiping me out. We all know where this is going. You're prospering, <laughs> and now i got to keep you away from me. Even though Laban is the one who places all the conditions on the covenant and the articles of the covenant are mostly designed to protect Laban, Jacob goes right along with it. I, I believe it's because he's developed that confidence that he has in God. He knows God's going to take care of him. And Jacob is the one who sets up the stone memorial. 
Something very interesting and significant happens here, though. Laban and Jacob call this memorial by the same name. But Laban names it in his language of Aram, while Jacob names it in Hebrew. They both mean heap. We will see God and his people systematically, though, change the names of things from old pagan labels to new Hebrew ones throughout the Old Testament. This is one way of God leaving his fingerprints on things to let all know he was here and that this location plays a significant role in his purposes. Our final chiastic structure, Dan, if you could put that up. We see at the beginning, Jacob sets up a stone memorial. At the end, Laban swears over the stone memorial. B&B Prime, Laban names this pile of stones. He named it the first time heap. He named it the second time probably by a different name because he didn't want to be outdone by Jacob. The central point here, though, is that Jacob gives it the Hebrew name of Galid. It now has God's fingerprints on it. This final chiasmus is much smaller and simpler. It begins with the stone memorial and ends with the stone memorial. In between, we see God begin the transformation process, changing the name from a pagan one to a Hebrew one. So what? As I was studying this chapter and doing my homework and trying to figure out how to approach this in our study for this morning, I'm having, wow, that's cool moment, one after another. I'm seeing the connections to Egypt. I'm seeing the connections to the cross. I'm seeing God's sovereignty in spite of man's frailty. And I'm going, man, this is really, really cool. Here's the problem, though. And this is where we we need to ask that question, so what? What good does it do us to learn all this? We have seen in this chapter that God has watched over his covenant representative by providing him with possessions, that he has demonstrated his superior superiority over idols and false gods, and that he is beginning to groom conditions to be conducive for his covenant people to enter the promised land. But if all we do in response to what we have learned here is, wow, that's really cool, we have missed the point of Scripture. So we've got to get back to what is the purpose of Scripture. It is to teach. It is to correct, it is to rebuke, and it is to train. So how does that happen here in this passage? This year, uh, and by the way, for those of you who don't know me, I'm the headmaster of Grace Christian Academy in Merrick. um, And uh, what I'm going to say now, you need to know that. This year we had some trying things happen at our school, as we do every year. We're dealing with human beings, and they mess things up. I was appalled to see, though, the response of many of our Christian parents because of what I said earlier, that many Christians today have been taught to attribute any inconvenience to the evil one. The trials we faced at GCA were perceived by many strictly as attacks of Satan. They clearly perceived the devil as the evil counterpart to God and expressed that as they prayed God would win and believe that as we prayed, God would win, and as we failed to pray, God would lose. This is horrible, horrible, unbiblical doctrine. Satan is not God's counterpart. He's his lackey. He's his tool. 
His power is only seen in his lie, and the spiritually feeble-minded will fall victim to and or follow his lies. We've been groomed by our current age's twisted teachings to believe that trials are intrinsically bad and to be avoided, and bad things are orchestrated by the devil. I would like to propose this morning that we need to quit glorifying the devil and begin recognizing that even what we perceive as miserable and tragic things are orchestrated by our good and sovereign God. Amen? James 1 says, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces. And it goes into a a list of things that it does produce. But he begins that by saying, Consider it all joy. And then he points out, that that testing is intentional and it's guided. Peter calls us to rejoice as we have been distressed by various trials that the proof of our faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Has the sojourn for Jacob been painful? Has it been frustrating? Has it been unjust and cruel at times? Yes, to all these questions. But was any of it accidental? Was any of it void of God's direction, goodness, and sovereign control? No. Even Jacob recognizes that. At any given point in biblical history, God is rarely, if ever, doing only one thing at a time. His workings are multifaceted, and we often see him accomplishing a whole series of things all at once. I can't chew gum and walk at the same time. That's why I'm not God. (laughs) God could have left Jacob back home and caused Rachel to come to him. He could have caused Jacob to produce children and wealth via a variety of means, none of which involved traveling to Padanaram and being abused by Laban. He could have done that. Had God chosen that route, though, many other things would never have taken place. While preaching through the book of Exodus, I remember Ed Moore pointing out that when God glorifies himself, it always goes for the favor of his people. Through these trials, God is developing the stage for a drama in which he will be glorified. Without that drama, without that stage, there's no glorification. Without Pharaoh's mistreatment of the Israelites, we never would have seen God's glory at the parting of the Red Sea. Without Goliath's taunting of Israel's army, we never would have seen God's glory in the defeat of what appeared to be an invincible foe. Without Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego being thrown into Nebuchadnezzar's furnace, we never would have seen one like the Son of God walking about in the fire. Without the crucifixion, we never would have seen the defeat of sin and the salvation of man. Every one of these glories could only be properly seen when preceded by a broken and busted up road of trials, pain, and suffering. Because of the way God carried out Jacob's journey, Jacob met him personally, was sanctified especially of his deceptive ways by the use of a deceptive man, and found wives and developed wealth that would serve as the foundation of a growing nation that would ultimately usher in the Messiah. God used years of trial to sanctify Jacob's character, to remove that which was sinful, to build in that which was righteous, and to equip him with things that he would need in order to effectively carry out God's plan. 
God used the turns, the cracks, the rocks, and the potholes in Jacob's road to bring about his divine objective and to glorify himself for the benefit of his people and for his own good pleasure. God bless the broken road. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the multitudinous blessings uh, that you have bestowed in our lives. But Lord, forgive us for when we fail to see those that cause us pain and misery as blessings. We see from God's, from, from your word, Lord, that even those painful things, they too are blessings. We acknowledge, Lord, as uncomfortable as it may be, that we need that to refine us, to make us better followers of Christ, to make us better glorifiers of yourself. Lord, we need to be broken of our humanly ways that only bring about destruction. Lord, we thank you for this great illustration we have in history of Jacob and the horrible things that he went through but, Lord, that you were in control of all the way. And, Lord, we thank you that you have provided for us the end of that story, that we can see that you were in charge all the time. Lord, that we can see that you used every one of those problems, every one of those uncomfortable events to bring about your glory and to bring about ultimately our salvation. Lord, as we end our service together today, I ask, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit that you would supernaturally work in our hearts and minds, that you would uh, pester us throughout today um, with what we've seen here in your word, that we would not escape it. Lord, that you would hold us accountable to thanking you and praising you for the comfortable as well as the uncomfortable that you would help us to worship you and give you thanks for those things that bring us pleasure as well as for those things that bring us pain as we anticipate your goodness and your sovereignty as you work in our lives. Lord, we know from your word uh, that as your children, you work all those things together for our good. Lord, help us to put our eyes on the end game rather than the immediate sensate experience. And, Lord, may we do so with ultimately the cross in mind. We hand us over to you, and we ask you to do great and mighty things in and through us. And, Lord, may we, starting with Massapequa and spreading out beyond, uh, bring that message of your sovereignty and your goodness to the lost, to the fallen, to encourage the brethren, Lord, to refine how we handle your word. And, Lord, may we bring your glory to this place. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.